Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to this EPCAS and ISACOS webinar series presentation um, titled Cartilage Lesion in the Non-Arthritic Knee Treatment Options and Indications. I'm Patrick Yong from Hong Kong, and uh, along with me is Brad Fish, uh, Brad Fish from Australia, uh, and we will be your moderators for the webinars today. Uh, we will first like to introduce to you our distinguished uh, EPCAS and ISACOS webinar panelists. Um, Firstly, from EPCAS, we have Deepai Goya from India, James Hoy from Singapore, and Norimasa Nakamura from Japan. Thanks, Patrick, and welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, on the ISACOS side, we've got a great group of speakers, uh, George Chawa from the US, uh, Eliza Khan uh, from Milan, and uh, David Parker from Sydney. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, it's a great panel and looking forward to a really lively discussion. Yeah, and um, we will be taking questions from all those who, uh, of you who are joining this webinars through the Q&A function um, on this uh, webinar apps, right? So thank you once again for attending this webinar. With that, uh, let's begin, right? So the first speaker will be uh, Norimasa Nakamura from Japan, and he will talk about the mobility of the focal, focal cartilage lesions and the challenges of improving their management. Hi, everybody. Uh, this is Nori Nakamura from Osaka, Japan, and welcome to the webinar uh, special program. And this is my blog uh, disclosure. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about uh, cartridge lesion mobility, uh, current practice, and future. Articular cartridge uh, is a unique structure composed of the several layers from superficial zone to classified cartridge layer and that smoothly uh, connect to the uh, subchondral bone. And as you know, a uh, very unique feature of cartridge matrix is uh, unvascularity. Uh, after injury, uh, the wound healing mechanisms doesn't work. So uh, in most of the uh, cartridge injuries regarded as incurable. And uh, uh, basically uh, uh, the grades of uh, cartridge injury is done by the depth of the injury. And this is ICRS classification. And when you look at uh, from grade zero to two, uh, the lesion depth is less than 50% of the chondral depth. But uh, grade three uh, depth is uh, go, goes over 50%. And uh, grade four, uh, subchondral bone is also damaged. And uh, typically, uh, grade three and four has certain symptoms uh, that require certain intervention. And the symptom uh, of uh, cartridge injury is very complex uh, from uh, uncomfortable feeling, pain, swelling, stiffness, uh, mechanical symptoms, pseudo instability, and inability to perform in certain position. So uh, it is very important to take uh, medical history very carefully at the clinic. And also we should consider uh, lesion specific issues, size, depth, uh, defect containment, chronicity, and joint specific issues, uh, meniscal function, alignment, and stability. And uh, patient specific issues such as age and uh, BMI. Also, uh, we should consider the location-specific features at uh, medial femoral condyle. That is the most common uh, site for the, of the injury, 
and the posture medial area is typically affected and uh, it is often associated with meniscus and ACL injury that is chronic cases. And uh, lateral femoral condyle uh, also associated with, uh, often associated with ACL injury that is fresh cases and uh, typically anterior aspect damaged and uh, commonly associated with patellar dislocation. Tibia plateau, uh, this is less common uh, site uh, and typically posterolateral area affected and commonly associated also uh, with ACL injury. Patella, uh, this is the second most uh, common uh, site uh, for the injury and uh, inferior medial facet typically affected and it causes anterior knee pain and uh, pain at uh, early flexion and commonly associated with patella dislocation and the dysplasia of the lower, lower extremity. Torochorea, uh, the lesion is uh, very symptomatic, uh, it is, uh, but uh, it is difficult to diagnose and uh, pain occurs at uh, knee flexion. And interestingly, uh, sometimes uh, observed uh, after ACL reconstruction. So uh, regarding the practice, uh, roughly there are four uh, treatment options and uh, each uh, procedure will be uh, very uh, precisely uh, presented by the uh, speakers, presenters, uh, following presenters. But uh, microfracture, briefly microfracture advantage is a single stage surgery, cost-effective and faster rehab protocol applicable. This disadvantage is poor long-term results. ACI and including uh, several cell-based therapies. Advantage, good results can be re uh, are reported and they can be used in most size lesions. Disadvantage, uh, basically this is a two-stage surgery so the donor site mobility uh, could, expect, could be expected. This is expensive and uh, only slower rehab protocol can be applied. And mosaic plastic odes. Uh, advantage, this is a single-stage surgery. Mature hyaline cartridge can be directly transplanted and the fast rehab uh, program can be applied. Disadvantage, uh, usually this is a two uh, require two surgical sites and uh, donor site mobility uh, is expected. Osteochondral allograft. Uh, no donor site mobility, mature hyaline cartridge can be transplanted and uh, useful, especially in large lesions. Disadvantage, it is expensive, requires extensive preparation and potential immunogenic uh, reactions expected, uh, specifically in, at a bony site. Uh, surgical algorithm. Uh, uh, this is basically uh, dependent on the size and uh, involvement of the uh, subcondral bone lesion. And uh, probably uh, these uh, detailed uh, you know, algorithm will be so, uh, presented later. So uh, I'd like to now uh, just focus on the future uh, therapy. Of course, uh, each four uh, major treatment option of cartridge uh, repair uh, very have a certain uh, good standard, but uh, of course, four of them have the room for the further improvement. For that, I'd like to uh, focus, uh, present uh, three points. One is application of the future combined gene and serial therapy. 
with the use of the genome editing uh, and or uh, cellular reprogramming uh, technology, uh, we can create uh, our own super stem cells uh, according to our purpose, uh, so uh, to the cartridge repair. Uh, with this, uh, we can uh, improve the quality uh, of the repair tissue close to the regenerative repair. And second, uh, we need novel intelligent biomaterials. Uh, that includes fast, uh, faster remodeling uh, with a good tissue integration and uh, maintain sustainable mechanical stability. With such properties, more rapid and secure rehab program uh, can be uh, developed. And uh, finally, I'd like to mention of the uh, cell-free regenerative medicine. Uh, this will be the placement of the cell-based therapy. Uh, instead of the, using the stem cells or chondrocytes, uh, we use an extracellular vesicle uh, that is released uh, by the stem cells or chondrocyte. And uh, these uh, vesicles, uh, typically called exosomes or secretomes, uh, they have the very, very uh, special signaling uh, capacity uh, to control the tissue repair, regeneration, and uh, inflammatory response and uh, also uh, some uh, aging uh, of the you know, cells. So, and uh, one advantage of this uh, vesicle is, uh, you know, more uh, easier, you know, quality control, control can be uh, available for the pro product. And also, uh, you know, we can, uh, you know, reduce the cost uh, for producing these uh, materials. So uh, with a combination of such uh, you know, technologies, uh, we can create uh, less invasive and with higher quality uh, and that enables uh, high, uh, rapid uh, rehabilitation uh, you know, protocols. So, and uh, such features could, should uh, be the benefit uh, to the patient uh, quality of life improvement. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nori. Uh, excellent presentation as usual, right? Um, so um, indeed, Nori is a core member of the ACRS, right? And now another core member from ACRS um, is the next speaker, James Hoy, right? So he's going to talk about the, what are the treatment options and what is the evidence for their use. So James, your turn. Thank you, Nori. Thank you. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Allow me to cover the modalities for cartilage repair. I have no disclosures. So these are the various treatment options for cartilage repair. And for each technique, I will describe it surgically and also look at its evidence by systemic review as well as long-term studies. So when you face with patients in your clinic as a clinician, what do you do? I would like to send you this take home message of the following classification. You look at a patient, you think, should we attack this by single stage or two stages? So if it were single stage, then we can start with a very low hanging fruit called microfracture. 
And then if you were to add on something like scaffold, so you can use AMIC, BST, and Cartier Or you think that I would like to add in a bit more cells. So things like bone marrow aspirate concentrate may be one option, or even allogenic stem cell as an off-shelf option. And then something a bit more invasive like transplant. So in transplantation, it can be autologous like autograph. So osteochondral autograph transfer like oats or mosaic plasty is one option. Or you can use fresh allograft. So osteochondral allograft as the other option. Now come to two stages. It usually means culture or expanded cells. So either use autologous chondral site or stem cells. So in the autologous chondral sites, you have the first generation periosteal ACI or the second, third generation matrix assisted Macy. And another, another option would be expanded stem cells, i.e. origin from bone marrow, adipose or synovial stem cells. So this is a, in a way, seven broad categories for you to choose from. So first, microfracture. This is a typical arthroscopic picture of microfracture. And if you want to have more colorful illustration, please refer to our faculty, Dr. Deepak Goya's book on cartilage repair. And what the evidence for microfracture? Review of 18 studies, level one to four. It showed good function initially and deteriorate after five years. And at five to 10 years, it may be, uh, have a failure rate up to 32%. So how about evidence for microfracture plus scaffold in this case? like Kajal or in the right-hand side, Cartifield. Again, review of 28 studies by Henning Mendry's same group, also level one to four. And they found that there's a lack of high quality randomized controls trial studies testing amic technique against ACIs. So therefore they feel it's not right to recommend amic for treatment. And then, of course, uh, you want to be sexier with uh, BMAC or so-called cells. So these are typically can be done or you do in patient with arthroscopic debridement and then get the, the curate touch of the ring very well and clean up with a dry scope. And after that, inject your BMAC or concentric cells. And having done that with a glue, and finally release the uh, normal saline to come in, and you find that it's still uh, stable. So, what are the evidence for this? Of course, Alberto Gobi, who's the pioneer for this, and he championed this course. And he found that eight year follow up, it still gives good clinical outcomes. However, bear in mind this is a uh, level four study with no control arm. Now move to transplantation, autograph. This is a typical cylinder oats. And you can see that patient with different diameter and where 
your donor plug can be plugged into the lesion. So literally robbing Peter to pay Paul. So beware of donor site morbidity. And then what well, the evidence again, they review level one, two studies, six studies that's found that just against microfracture, there's not real difference in terms of osteoarthritis. However, in terms of ICRS score, return to activities, it seemed to be better in the Oaks group. Next, the allograph, osteochondral fresh allograph. And this will be a bit special. Prior to surgery, you need to do a measurement of the x-rays. So you get to tailor make your allograph and intra-op, that's how you nicely do the lesion and then get your orientation all right and this how it's been done. So what are the evidence? Well, the evidence is this. All our faculty are here as well. Uh, George Chala did the review study, level one to four, found that, well, improved patient outcomes certainly until 10 year follow up and survival rate is as good as two thirds for as long as 20 years. Next, we come to the second stage. So first would be the periosteal derived ACI. So you can see periosteum stitch under very nice finer suture and with chondrocytes injected underneath. So what are the evidence? One of the longest follow-up, JBJS, Nuxen class uh, publication, 15 years, they found that mm, in almost 60% of surviving patients, they will have a grade two OA. And they feel that there's failure almost 40% at 15 years follow-up in the ACI group. And this is a RCT level one publication. So other people also have done a study to look at when they compare ACI versus microfracture. Uh, they found that not huge difference, but patient treated ACI may have more benefit in terms of quality of life, pain relief. Although um, in real clinical relevance, it may not be achieved, but this is level one, level two, systematic review. So of course here comes in Macy, which is a second and third generation ACI where the defect is debrided and you can see matrix embedded cells. So these are supposedly superior to that of periosteal graft. Uh, ACI. So this is how the product is. So Macy had to refer to Matt Spritbert study, fire follow-up, submit paper. You can see that improvement in cool score, but MRI did not find a significant difference compared to that microfracture. However, they feel that larger lesion, symptomatically, patient were better compared to that of microfracture. And our friend um, Deepak, together we also uh, review for level one, two study when trying to compare against the periosteal ACI. And we find that only weak evidence may see is uh, superior to that of first generation ACI. Lastly, on the last group of uh, cell, expanded autologous stem cells. So you can either by bone marrow in my own case, or synovial in Dr. Nakamura's case. And this is how it's been done and inject and repair the, the graph.
and what the evidence? So my own group have done 10 year follow-up of bone marrow versus uh, ACI. And we found that this equally uh, superior and there's improvement in all the outcomes like COOS and ICR, uh, IKDC, and there's no risk of increased tumor formation. How about other people? When they use Nissan common stem cells without adjuvant therapy, what they found also in OA group they actually improved pain for follow-up more than one month, uh, one year, and significantly better in terms of bone marrow derived cells compared to that adipose cells. And also culture cells are better than uncultured cells. So I hope I've given you a quick and succinct briefing of what you can do in the seven modalities of treatment of cartilage repair. Thank you for your attention. So the next speaker will be another John from Asia, uh, the current president from ACRS, of ACRS, uh, Deepak Goya, so uh, from India. So his uh, presentation is talking about decision-making based on lesion size. What do I use for a small, medium or large defect and why? So Deepak, your turn. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, friends. Thank you very much for joining the ISACOS APCAS webinar. I have no disclosures to share. And before we start or decide any treatment, it is important to understand variables. The first variable is age. Consider that, that you are operating or doing an ACL reconstruction in 17-year-old boy, and you encounter 1.5 centimeter square lesion, and you have nothing else, and you just decide to do microfracture. Believe me, you will see good healing at one year time. If there is a girl of 18 years old with a small OCD and you do mosaicplasty and you will see a good healing. Or if there is a 14-year-old boy with a huge osteochondral damage because of osteonecrosis and there is a large subchondral bone damage, you do bone grafting and you do ACI and you would see good healing of bone and the cartilage. Or come again, there is a 16-year-old girl, there is an osteochondral fracture of patella, you just suture it back and you see good healing in three months' time. But all this privilege of good healing is restricted to younger age. As the age increases, this privilege is gradually getting lost and there are lesser and lesser good results. And that should be kept in mind. The other variables are like etiology, location of the lesions and concomitants, which my future speakers are going to cover. So I'm not talking about it. The next important thing is lifestyle. And if you see your patient has a poor lifestyle, refrain from it. Another important aspect is level of activity. Say, for example, there is a patient who has a low demand, maybe a receptionist or an office fitting person, and he has a patellar chondral lesion, and you decide to do abrasiochondroplasty. You can expect a good result in that patient because he has a low demand patient. But on the other side, if it is a high demand patient, say a factory worker or a ballet dancer, and there is a similar lesion on the same location, of patella, say for example, then you need to do a more highland producing method because he needs a better highland repair because of his demands. Now comes the size, which is the, my topic. So we gradually, or we usually divide lesions into three parts, small lesion that is less than one to two centimeters square, medium lesions between two to four centimeters square, and large lesions more than four centimeters squares. But there are red flags. Lesion shapes are neither round nor square, but they are irregular. MRI consistently underreport the size of the chondral lesions, and there is no uniform formula or method to measure the lesion size. Hence, underestimation or overestimation of size during arthroscopy is common. So with these red flags in mind, let us talk about decision-making for small size lesions. 
In 2013, we did a review paper, which was a systematic review of literature with level two evidence, and we concluded that microfracture is a good choice for it gives good clinical outcome for small lesions, low post-operative demand patients, and younger patients. So it may be a plausible option to treat microfracture or to treat small lesions with microfracture if there is a low demand activity. However, if there is a high demand patient, I would recommend, say for example, it is a one centimeter square lesion, just harvest 10 millimeter oats plug, a single plug harvest, and the job is done. There will be a highland repair and you can forget about the lesion. For small size, ACI and allografts are too costly and too technically demanding, and hence I won't recommend these two procedures for small lesions. Let's talk about medium-sized lesions. There's a consistent report that mid-sized lesions treated with microfracture deteriorate over time. And this consistency is more as the lesion size increases, increases in the number. So we should be careful when treating large size or mid-sized lesions with microfracture. However, there are equal reports that if microfracture is treated, used for treatment of mid-sized lesion with a low post-operative demands, it's a level two evidence paper from Olstein, then the results are similar to uh, OCT at midterm or long-term results. So maybe there might be a small window for microfracture in mid-sized lesions. Say for example, if surgeon doesn't have access to OATS or ACI and the patient has a low demand patient, then he can choose to treat mid-sized lesions with microfracture. However, if the patient is athlete, if it's a high demand patient, then microfracture should not be done and OCT should be the treatment of choice. If you look at this graph, then it clearly shows that microfracture tends to fail very early and very high number as compared to OCT cases. So OCT should be the treatment of choice for mid-sized lesions. And so is ACI. Andrade's systematic review of literature, he said that microfracture and OCT both provides faster return to sports and faster clinical and functional results. But ACI also enhances long-standing clinical and functional results in mid-sized lesions. So ACI also have a distinct advantage in mid-sized lesions. What about HA-BMAC combination? HA-BMAC combination provides good to excellent results in long-term follow-up, but I would like to remind that there are very few paper, only a handful paper to support HA-BMAC. This seems to be a very promising procedure, but we need more paper, more long-term results to rely on this procedure. And that should, at present, there should be a cautious approach towards this procedure. So to summarize, microfracture or augmented microfracture has a high failure rate. Only a low demand patient may benefit from it. The treatment of choice is OCT because it's a single stage, cost-effective arthroscopic procedure. The, it is an ideal procedure for mid-size lesion. It provides good congruency in mid-size lesions and provides highland repair in young and active patients. However, if the size is gradually more, if there is increasing size in mid-size lesion, then I prefer to do ACI procedure, which also has the advantage that it doesn't have any congruency issue. It provides long-term results and highland-like repair. BMAC, at present, there is a limited evidence, so there should be, we should be a little bit careful about that. Allografts, again, for mid-size lesion, I feel it is too costly and too demanding for mid-size lesions. What about large-size lesions? The only problem for use of OCT in large size lesion is donor side morbidity and limited donor area. Even if you try and you harvest so many or good number of plugs, then you cannot contour dome so many plugs for the femoral to maintain femoral concurrency, and it gets more and more technically demanding. 10 years ago, over enthusiasm with my performance, I decided to treat a large lesion with OCT. I could harvest six plugs and I put five plugs in place and the six plugs got 
was broken and I was in trouble. The lesson was learned. Don't treat large lesions with osteochondral cylinder grafts and ACI is the preferred treatment for large lesions. There are enough number of papers that confirm that long-term success of clinic on clinical and MRI following the ACI procedure. If you talk about the survival, in adolescent patients, the survival rate is higher. In general population, it is little bit low, but if you look at this paper, 63% survival at 20 years, but at the same time, these people were also aging. If you look at the allografts, if you look at the Cochrane review, there is no evidence from RCT to support osteochondral allograft. But if you look at the case series, there are good number of case series that shows good survival till 10 years, and there are few series that shows good survival beyond 15 years also. So to summarize, for large size lesions, MF, OCT, BMAC, I will not prefer. My treatment of choice will be ACI. It justifies the cost and two stage involved. There is no size restriction. Usually these lesions are associated with bony pathology as well. So you can add bone grafting to ACI. It provides superior results as compared to MF and OCT. For the yellow grafts, it's again a single stage. It can treat associated subcondyl involvement. It is a long survival, no size restriction no donor side morbidity. However, availability can be issue in many countries. So to summarize, my decision algorithm will be in adolescents, if it is OCD and trauma, irrespective of the size, fix it, fix it, and fix it. But if it is not fixable for small size, either MF or OCT for mid-size OCT and for large size ACI. In middle-age group patients, if it's a low demand patient, I will do MF. If it's a high demand patient, I will do OCT. In the mid-size lesion, in a middle-aged patient, low demand, I will first do OCT, and if high-demand patient, I may do OCT or ACI. In the larger lesion, if it is a low-demand patient, I will do ACI with or without bone grafting or osteochondral allograft, depending upon my logistics and experience. To summarize, consider all variables before finalizing the treatment method. No, one variable is not enough. You have to go through whole spectrum of variables. The size of the lesion, small lesion, MF, if high demand, OCT, mid-size lesion, either OCT or ACI, a very few patients which have a low demand can be treated with MF, but be cautious about it. Large lesion, ACI with or without bone grafting or allograft, depending on surgeon's experience and logistics. Thank you very much. All right, great presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, before Thank I you. introduce, just like to introduce George Chahala from uh, Chicago. Uh, good friend of mine, and thank you for joining us, George. Thank you so much, Brad. I appreciate um, the opportunity to talk today. I like you a lot, and that's why I'm giving this talk at 4.30 a.m. here in Chicago. <laughs> so hopefully next time we're going to do it from, from Australia or some uh, better place that it's warmer at least. So Brad asked me to talk about cartilage lesion location and to be able to understand if they're all the same. So the answer is yes and no. Yes, because we have to follow the same principles to treat them. And those are, what is the least that I can do to make them better? What will provide the fastest recovery to that patient? And what will endure the loads imposed? As we've heard from the previous speakers, it's not the same to have a low demand or a high demand or a high level athlete. So the principles are the same. We treat people conservatively. They have an acute onset of their performance is maintained. And we treat them surgically when they have failed non-operative treatment, when it's affecting their lifestyle and when they have impaired performance for high-level athletes. We always have to think, you know, we always talk about surgery and, and what's the best treatment. 
for this or that type of lesion. But we have to remember that there's a return to the mean concept when we're treating cartilage injuries as well as osteoarthritis, where you, you can see that some people would have a flare up and they will go back to a baseline. And that baseline might not be the same where they started, but they will go back to a baseline. So it's always important to give them time to see if they will actually need any sort of surgical treatment. What are the surgical treatments, uh, non-surgical treatments that we have available? One is do nothing, skillful neglect. If you just give them time, six weeks of physical therapy uh, or just even time and anti-inflammatories, they might get better. Injection to treat the inflammatory mediators if need be. Um, I'm not saying just cortisone, but sometimes any sort of AHA or PRP might be okay to treat smaller injuries. And physical therapy, of course, to work on strengthening uh, of a VMO, for example, if they have a patellofemoral injury and so forth. So this is something that we should be thinking about when we see these patients for the first time in clinic. Now, if you need to treat them surgically, be minimalistic. We don't need to jump to a very um, you know, large procedure and replace the cartilage and, and do a Macy biopsy that might be too expensive. You know, a debridement can be okay in 70% of the patients. And this allows you to know exactly where the lesion is as we were hearing from previous speakers. Um, usually MRIs underestimate the size of the, of the chondral lesions. And we sometimes don't see exactly what's going on on the tibial side, how's the meniscus pathology. So at first, a diagnostic arthroscopy, debridement only might get you out of trouble and seven out of 10 cases, so it's not negligible. Now, if you have to go uh, further down the line, well, you can start looking at all these options. And as you know, if you replace cartilage with cartilage, that's gonna be your best bet. So what to do, I'm gonna try to present an algorithm here, that, which is basically what I use in my mind to try to decide what to do. One, if it's a, it's a very high level athlete, you have to see where in the season are they, because you can't be too aggressive at the beginning of the season. You wanna let them play as, as much as you can, and then probably treat them at the end of the season. And these are the four things that I always think about. Alignment is the first thing that I think about, not only in tibiofemoral joint issues, but also in the patellofemoral joint, because I wanna make sure that I'm gonna give that cartilage repair, or even you might not need a cartilage repair procedure just by doing an osteotomy. The second thing is the degree of osteoarthritis. The third thing is the size of the lesion as we just heard. And the final thing is location, which is, what I'm gonna talk about. And that's how I build basically my algorithm. If you have a pretty bad alignment or alignment that is completely off, then osteotomy might be all that they need. If they have too much arthritis and debridement, if they have a small size injury, as we heard before, oats or microfracture plus, and if it's large, then we see if it's a resurfacing procedure, if it's deeper, uh, if it's a deeper lesion, we go with a more osteochondral type of um, repair. Where are the lesions? Mostly on the medial femoral condyle, as we've heard before as well, but it doesn't matter too much. You just need to have the principles. Let's go with patellofemoral joint consideration. Where is the problem? It's critical here. If it's inferior lateral, medial, or proximal or palm patellar, it's gonna change significantly, as well as if, if the lesion is in the trochlea. So a focus on osteotomy will give you great results by itself if the lesion is inferior lateral. 55% uh, success if it's medial and 20% if it's proximal or palmpatellar and almost zero if it's associated with a bipolar lesion on the trochlea. Now, if it's inferior lateral, if you just do uh, an AMC, as we said before, if the TTTG is over 15 millimeters, you can achieve pretty good outcomes. As we said before, 87% success with only an AMC. 
So in those people, you can unload them uh, pretty safely. If it's medial or proximal, even if you do an AMC, it's not gonna be probably enough. So you try to do this as vertical as you can of a cut. I usually use a guide to get to 60 degrees. So it's almost a, a, a splitting the TV in half. And that's gonna give you some more relief of that anteriorization, but you also need to add some cartilage uh, procedures at this point because you're only gonna get 75% um, good outcomes when you do it this way. But when we talk about when we talk about cartilage procedures, in addition to uh, osteotomies or like a full course and osteotomy on AMC, what do we need to do? And this is something that they previously described in previous talks. If you have a very small lesion, microfracture plus on the patellofemoral joint, be very careful. Oats is another option. If you have more than two centimeters, if it's deeper, if it's a revision, if it's a bipolar injury, I usually will use an osteochondral allograft. And if it's superficial, you can use any resurfacing procedure. Macy is my go-to procedure. And if it's oblong, I would also use this type of technology because I don't want to take too much healthy cartilage from the rounds of the, of the cartilage defect. As we were hearing from previous speakers, these lesions are never rounded or square. They're usually irregular and you don't want to take too much cartilage that might be healthy. And this is a previous systematic review where we are seeing that microfractures are decreasing in number and all the restorative procedures are increasing. And the reason why microfracture was so popular is because it's easy, it's cheap, it's available everywhere, but would, I would only perform it on the trochlea if need be. And the reason being is that on the patella, it's very technically difficult. It's difficult to create stable borders. It's difficult to create a perpendicular microfracture arthroscopically, has fewer progenitor cells in the patella, and the shear forces will put a, a test the fibrocartilage that you will recreate. So this is something I would caution you uh, about not doing potentially in the patella because you might uh, get less than optimal results. On the trochlea, the repair tissue, as we know, is fibrocartilage. The longevity, as we heard before, and, and this is good to re keep repeating, worsen after two years, and the return to sports is 44%, which is less than optimal. Oats procedures for smaller lesions, as uh, we heard greatly from DPAC, uh, it, it's hard to do this in, in a very large lesion and, and you have sometimes breakage of the osteochondral plugs and that can be a, a significant problem by the time of surgery. You have donor side morbidity, multiple plugs can be an issue. There's different cartilage thickness on the patella and on the tibiofemoral joint and therefore you're going to have a mismatch there. And it's also very hard bone, so it's challenging actually to do as a procedure. Osteochondral allografts, we've published this on, on the tibiofemoral joint and the t on the patellofemoral joint. Survivorship is around 77% of 10 years. So it's from a cartilage re repair standpoint, one of the most uh, long so, uh, longstanding uh, cartilage processes or, or, or procedures that we can perform. It's challenging sometimes, mostly on the, on the, tibio on the patellofemoral joint because uh, matching the anatomy and the curvature of the trochlea can be difficult and sometimes overstaffing in a thin host uh, patella can be also difficult. This is the de novo uh, material, this particulated juvenile allograft. It's very easy to perform. Um, it can be performed in small to medium contained lesions. It's important that they are contained. It's challenging from an insurance standpoint, at least here in the US, because it's hard to get it approved. It has been shown to have really good outcomes, but you have to be careful because some uh, series have demonstrated hypertrophic cartilage repair 
when uh, you overstuff the, the lesions and therefore you have to make sure that they're basically uh, at the level or below the level of the cartilage injury. This is a systematic review from Colorado University, 10 studies on, on Macy, uh, both in the tibial femoral joint and the patellofemoral joint uh, defects, all improved PROs with only 7% failure. One thing that was uh, actually pretty, pretty good to know was that the failure was significantly higher in the tibial femoral joint than in the patellofemoral joint. Usually most of the things that we will see have worse outcomes in the patellofemoral joint. But can they return to sports? 73% of, of these patients could return to sports in this series. And this author suggested that a return to low to moderate activity is something realistic that we can tell patients that we, they can get back to. How about the femoral joint? As we know, when you compare microfracture to any sort of restoration, restorative procedure of the cartilage, they will do better when you do something like OATS and OCA, both for uh, pain scores and also for activity levels. Now, is there any way that we can do microfracture better? Probably yes, as you can see on the left-hand side, you have a traditional microfracture with an awl. On the right-hand side, you have a newer type of technique with a micro-drilling. And in this um, you know, histologic cut, you can see that a microfracture with an awl can cause significant bone marrow or, or, or bone reaction to that microfracture. And you can see that all the channels have been closed basically because they created an escherotic process around the microfracture. Whereas if you drill, you still have those bone marrow channels open. And they have shown to not create healing necrosis and therefore they might have better outcomes. We have a paper coming in arthroscopy that shows that micro drilling has significantly better outcomes than microfracture with an awl. So this is something to consider when you're performing this procedure. Are there any consequences of doing a microfracture? Yes, if you do it the traditional way, you have 2.45 times more chances of failure rate if you do a resurfacing procedure down the line. So be careful because you might affect your future outcomes. Oats, as we said before, for small injuries have good to excellent results in femur and results in high return to sport rates. Uh, on the femoral joint, again, really low reoperation rate down the line. So this is something we should consider. This is showing again that OCA can be a very good treatment for, the, for injuries in the femoral joint as well, 80% at 10 years uh, survivorship. And can they return to sport? Two series, one from, from our university here at Rush and one from San Diego, Bill Bugby, 75 to 77% return to sport rate, which is pretty phenomenal for a cartilage restoration procedure. ACI, some uh, articles say that it's better in the femoral, in the femoral joint, some articles say that it's better on the patella, but you know, overall, pretty good outcomes on both uh, patient, um, patient uh, samples. Now, one thing that we need to know is that sometimes all the restorative procedures that are resurfacing procedures such as Macy might take a little bit longer to achieve those outcomes. And this is what we've seen in our series where uh, patients that have an OCA might get better sooner uh, although at two years, the outcomes are the same as Macy. In the TV, I recently started using this procedure, which I found to be fairly reliable. I harvest the, the, the cartilage from the notch using uh, a net uh, in my shaver. And then I mix this cartilage, the autologous cartilage with BMAC, as well as um, you know glue at the end to, to make it sit on the defect. I distend the joint using 
water at the beginning, but then CO2 so that it's completely dry and the lesion is, is dry. I make these microfractures with a drill. These injuries are very hard to get to. And that's why I think this uh, technique is actually a good technique to repair this type of procedure. You can see here, using CO2, you have a perfect extension and you can see pretty well. You can see the autologous cartilage uh, surrounded with BMAC and then glue at the end to aid in a pretty good repair. So in conclusion, be minimalistic, try non-op first, respect the general principles, regardless of the fact that it might be on the tibiofemoral joint or on the patellofemoral joint. Osteotomies are the key sometimes when there's malalignment and depending on, on where it is in the patellofemoral joint, you have to be, be thinking of an AMC that might be more vertical or not. And if you have uh, patellofemoral tibial cartilage repair procedures, you can expect to achieve excellent outcomes and great return to sports rates if you use the right technique. Thank you very much. Thanks, George. Great talk. Um, before I introduce Eliza for the next talk, I just remind the, all the attendees to use the question and answer function if they like. It's not often you get access to this kind of panel. So take them, make the most of it, send through the questions. A lot of them will be responded to directly by someone on the panel and some of them will use for the discussion after. Uh, so I'll just hand it over now to uh, uh, Elizaveta Kahn uh, from Milan who will uh, give her presentation. Thank you very much, Eliza, for being part of it today. Good afternoon to everybody. Some my disclosures and the when we are talking about cartilage, osteochondral full thickness defect treatments, we have to consider a lot of uh, patient features. Starting with age, activity level, we'll talk about all these features today, coming to the defect uh, localization grade and also the other defect features. What I have to focus in my talk is on defect etiology, acute traumatic lesion against focal degeneration against osteochondritis desiccans. But what I want to say that more than the other features, defect etiology brings with it also other patient features. For example, when we are talking about traumatic lesion, for sure you are most of the time talking about of this type of patient. So we are talking about young patients, sport active patient with an isolated chondral lesion, frequently associated to another uh, traumatic lesions like autologous cruciate ligament lesion, meniscal lesion. And most of the time we are not expecting to find axial deviation or more articular degeneration of signs of osteoarthritis. So this is a relatively happiest patient between all the cartilage patients and more easy to treat and given much more satisfaction to us. So with features we, I take in consideration when we are talking about the traumatic lesion, more with, most of the time of the lesion characteristics. So uh, this is a very rough, all the algorithms are rather rough. So here I was just trying to make an algorithm divided in small, large and osteochondral lesions. Most of the time it's poor chondral lesions. It's rare that they're osteochondral. And in the small lesions, we have also good results with uh, reparative technique like microfracturing. But my big favorite for small lesions is steel mosaic plastic, which provides complete regeneration of the defect and provides very good and very uh, short rehabilitation respect to the other techniques. 
When we are talking about large lesion, for a lot of years, my big favorite was autologous chondrocyte transplantation. Why? Autologous chondrocyte transplantation is uh, strongly connected to the history of cartilage uh, transplantation regeneration anywhere. And we started from um, first generation through the second generation up to coming to the new scaffold. But if we look on the results of uh, second generation, in this case, as a second generation, this is uh, Giuseppe Filardo's group. They looked on our long-term result of our troscopic autologous chondrocyte transplantation. And they find that there was long-term benefit with good maintenance of activity scores and patient satisfaction, especially when we were talking about the traumatic lesions in these patients. So uh, in this patient, we have to aim regeneration of the joint. They have still a lot of time to live and to be active. So we really need to look to their activity levels. So uh, this is, for example, was two comparative studies we did a lot of time ago. And also looking on the soccer players, this was a cohort of soccer players. We find out that activity level on long-term in these patients was better respect to the microfracture. So it's really good to invest in regenerative technique in traumatic lesion in young patients. But when we are talking about degenerative focal lesions, probably another type of patients coming up. We are talking about most of the time, not very young, but middle age. Most of the time they are still sport active. A lot of times they have multiple lesions and a lot of previous surgery probably, especially meniscus um, resection a lot of time ago. Sometimes a lot of arthroscopies and some cartilage surgery and a lot of uh, previous story. Normally they have also sometimes they have axial deviations and most of the time they have associated of earlier striatritic changes in their joint, if, even if we are talking about so uh, what we do with this, um, with these patients? So it's also roughly, when you're talking about degenerative lesion, for me, it's always osteochondral lesion. It's never poorly chondral problem. Most of the time you have to address also subchondral bones. So we are preferring techniques addressing sub also subchondral bones, so osteochondral types of transplantation. And here you have to distinguish if we are talking about younger patients or elder patients with a low activity. For the elder patient with a low activity, you can reserve conservative treatments like biological injections, physiotherapy, and so on. When you're talking about young and active patients, probably you have to invest once again, big surgery with regeneration. In this case, we are using a lot of time biomaterials and probably you have to think about association with osteotomy and probably with a meniscal transplantation. This is an example of the nanostructural biomaterial we used as a scaffold for reconstruction in these patients in early osteoarthritis. Patients with rather good results and the good maintenance of the results and activity level, especially in the patient under 40 years old. So it's really important to invest in the younger patients. When we are talking about osteochondritis, these accounts is totally different story. We can talk for ages about osteochondritis, these accounts, it's a rather complicated thing. And in this case, your focus, your patience is once again, totally different. Probably you have a kid 
in front of you, at least young adult, frequently sport active, most of the time is isolated uh, osteochondritis desiccans, not associated with meniscal lesions or any other type of traumatic lesion. And most of the time we have no degeneration of the joint or axial deviations in these patients. So what do you look on? In this case, the first thing I'm looking on is the state of physis. So between the juvenile and adult form of osteochondritis desiccans. Then we start um, to look on the features of the lesion, the stability of the lesion, uh, so grading of the lesion, vitality of the fragment, the size, and then only about, we'll think about functional needs because here we are thinking about saving the knee of this kid for the rest of his life. So this is once again complicated to make algorithm, but I tried to make my decision make an algorithm. So let's have the open phases patients. They are younger kids, and they have a room for conservative treatment when it's grade one or two. But when it's grade uh, three or four, most of the time we're going for drilling or for refixation of the fragment. When we're talking about elder patient with closed phases, in grade one or two, we are using drilling and refixation technique. When we are talking about grade three or four, especially in big lesions, we have to use biomaterials in smaller lesions, you can have uh, use mosaic plastic, you can use massive autografts, and you can use allografts in this patient. This was uh, a, our review of our patients treated with different regenerative technique uh, uh, published in 2011, but it's not a lot of things changing. You, here you have no choice, you have absolutely in, to invest in the reconstruction of the joint because these patients are, really have a lot of time in front of them. And you can do combination of bone without oligochondrocytes, we were trying scaffolds, we were trying different techniques and most of the technique gives rather good results, but it's important to reconstruct bone and cartilage in this case. And obviously younger patient is better is regenerative potential of this patient. This is just another example of another scaffold, which is a coral-based scaffold. And this is the patient with a rather big central trochlear osteochondritis desiccans. We used on one plug of the scaffold, and you can see the nice result on three years of follow-up and very good clinical result in this patient. This is another scaffold. As I said, this patient is relatively good patients. This is a use of the nanostructural scaffold I showed you before. And these patients have also very good regeneration and clinical outcomes. This is not a lot of agreement. It, as you can see, uh, RS recommendation was only three recommendations with a strong consensus. So it's really difficult to talk about the algorithms and the treatment of osteochondritis. These accounts. So uh, in the conclusions, we have a lot of different techniques available and the challenge is the correct indication, proper surgical skills. And what I always say, you have to address all comorbidities. So we are treat, not the lesion, but the joint and more than the joint, you treat the patients. Thank you for your attention.
Thanks, Liza. Great talk. Uh, we've got our last speaker for the evening, uh, Dave Parker, and his little introduction to many, many of us on the uh, talk, I'm sure. Uh, thanks, Dave. Thanks very much, Brett and uh, Patrick, and greetings to everybody out there, whatever time of day or night it might be. Uh, and congratulations on, on a great webinar. Thanks for inviting me. These are my disclosures. So as you've heard, cartilage repair and restoration is often difficult to succeed, even if the conditions are optimal. So if there are unfavorable loads due to either meniscal loss, alignment, instability, or all three, that gives us increased risk of failure of this cartilage treatment. So the supplementary considerations I'd like to cover in this talk is uh, meniscal deficiency, uh, instability, and particularly focusing mainly on alignment. So for example, if we have this 25-year-old person who's lost their lateral meniscus, they have full thickness chondral lesions, and their alignment is in valgus, then of course doing an isolated chondral procedure will not fix that problem. If we talk briefly about meniscal pathology, it's obviously very important to acutely repair any repairable meniscal pathology when there's chondral pathology. So bucket handle tears, ramp lesions, we all know about. Uh, in more recent times, good techniques have been devised to repair root lesions like you see here, and that can restore the meniscal function very well. And even radial tears, which traditionally we will excise, especially in younger patients, this is a lateral meniscus radial tear. It has some vascularity around the rim. And you can certainly repair the outer part of these tears and restore some meniscal function quite nicely, which will have a beneficial effect for any cartilage treatment that you're uh, trying to do. And of course, if there's been chronic meniscal deficiency with chondral pathology, then meniscal transplant is an appropriate option to consider. Uh, with instability, uh, most commonly we see it with ACL injury, and usually the stability is addressed at the same time as the chondral pathology. So if we have this 21-year-old student who's torn his ACL and has a full thickness chondral lesion, as well as an extruded meniscus, the stability of the joint obviously needs to be addressed if you're going to address the chondral pathology and the meniscal pathology. With patellofemoral instability, we will typically address the chondral pathology first and address the stability of the joint later in an elective fashion. So restoration of stability is critical to protect chondral surfaces and avoid further injury. Moving on to alignment. So we should always assess alignment when considering any form of chondral surgery. And this should at least involve a clinical assessment as well as alignment x-rays. This should be routine for everybody. In some cases, we have the opportunity to do gait analysis, which is probably a much more dynamic way of looking at the loads on the joint. And computer navigation can be useful in some instances, particularly to look at how the alignment changes as you bend your knee, particularly with more posterior lesions. So which patients need alignment correction? Well, in general, any situation in which the alignment results in excessive loads that may compromise the success of your cartilage treatment. So if you have this 26-year-old male who's got full thickness lesion on his medial femoral condyle, if you just try and treat the chondral lesion, obviously that will fail because of the alignment. So correcting someone's alignment will either normalize or reduce the load on the restored cartilage. I think it's important to remember that restored cartilage is often not completely normal. We talk about hyaline-like cartilage and it may not have the same durability as normal cartilage. So offloading it will give it a better chance of success. 
So what do we know about alignment, compartment loads, and chondral pathology? Well, the traditional recommendations for realignment surgery is to overcorrect up to five degrees of valgus, or more recently, people talked about the Fujisawa point. But these are largely recommendations for osteoarthritis, not for chondral pathology. So we did some finite element analysis studies uh, to try and predict how the loads change in each compartment as you change someone's alignment. And in conclusion, we found that the loads across the two compartments in this virtual analysis equalized at about 1.5 degrees of mechanical valgus, so just slightly valgus of neutral. We've also done gait studies showing that for our arthritis patients, when you correct them to two to three degrees of mechanical valgus, you offload the area and just slightly increase the loads on the lateral compartment. We've also done cartilage restoration studies with just an osteotomy showing that correcting people to two to three degrees of mechanical valgus will offer favorable conditions for some cartilage restoration in the medial compartment. So what guidelines can we take from this evidence? When is the load too much? Well, for the medial compartment, you can assume that any varus, either neutral or beyond, will have more than 50% of the body weight on the medial compartment. For the lateral compartment, greater than one degree of mechanical valgus will have more than 50% load on that compartment. And obviously in the patellofemoral compartment, I think we can assume that any malalignment, usually lateral, will place excessive loads in that direction. So to try and take some guidelines for correction, and these are my personal guidelines, in the medial compartment, if you're looking after chondral pathology in the otherwise healthy knee, I would correct to one degree of valgus. If it's more chronic chondral loss or early arthritis, two to three degrees of valgus. In the lateral compartment, we tend to correct to neutral. I think it's also important to consider the etiology of the chronicity of the pathology. So a full thickness chondral lesion from an acute injury is very different to more chronic chondral loss secondary to lateral meniscal loss and valgus alignment, like you see in this video here, where there's an abnormal lateral meniscus and there's chronic developing articular cartilage wear. So isolated chondral treatment would be more appropriate in acute lesions. How do we achieve the desired correction? Well, we're all familiar with preoperative planning. I tend to use the technique you see on the left. The technique on the right is a bit simpler, but both are quite accurate. Uh, for many years now, however, we've used computer navigation as well uh, to help guide the alignment during the surgery. And we've done studies also showing that this is a very accurate way to look at the alignment in real time. In recent times, we've used 3D printed guides to allow an image-based correction and actually simplify the surgical procedure. And currently we still use it with the navigation just as a secondary check. So currently we'll do EOS x-rays, which is AP and lateral full length alignment x-rays to look at the alignment of each bone individually. We'll do a CT scan to look at the deformity of each bone, determine where we wanna do our osteotomy and then enter all that data into an app in which we can then adjust the opening to a certain percentage of the tibial width, or we can look at the degrees correction. So we can fine tune the correction. I think if we're doing this, not just for arthritis, but for different pathology, it's very important to be able to fine tune your correction. We can then work out the correction angle and the wedge size on the tibia and virtually place a plate there, which allows us to make a guide which will uh, guide our cutting plane as well as the screw position. So when we use this, as you see here, we have the PSI guide in place. We've also got the navigation in place as our secondary check. This is with the guide in place before we do our cut, and this is the final product.
So just a couple of examples. This is a case of Dr. Fritch's, this is Brett's case. So this patient had an osteoid osteoma excised and bone grafted and plated. Unfortunately, he went on to osteonecrosis and collapse with a patient whose overall alignment is in some slight varus. So the 3D guide was able to be made to cut the defect out of the tibia and cut a corresponding defect from an allograft, which as you can see here was then taken from the allograft and inserted into the tibia uh, with fixation there, and then an osteotomy to offload the area into three degrees of valgus. Another example, a 15-year-old female. So this uh, young girl was managed elsewhere initially. She had a large OCD on the lateral femoral condyle with a displaced fragment here. You can see it again on the coronal views. Uh, this was then referred to me having had it fixed with bioabsorbable pins and you can see the lesion is still unstable and the alignment is in about four to five degrees of mechanical valgus. So to correct this, we did a distal femoral osteotomy to offload the area and we did a Macy implantation and you can see the good restoration of the articular cartilage. So in conclusion, always consider any factors that may have contributed to the development of the chondral pathology and that may compromise your cartilage treatment. Now this may be patient factors such as their weight and their activity level as previous speakers have mentioned, but also the factors with their knee, their alignment, their stability, and any meniscal deficiency. And it's obviously critical to correct any factors that may place excessive loads on restored cartilage if the treatment is going to have optimal outcomes. On that note, I thank you for your attention and I'd like to welcome you to uh, Isikos's virtual Knee Arthroplasty Symposium that's being held in a few weeks. And also we hope to see everybody in the Cape Town at the end of the year. Thank you. Okay, um, thank you very much, David. Right, a nice, very nice presentation. So with that, we are going to the Q&A sections, right? I think uh, we still have like a little bit more than 15 minutes, right? Um, I have seen um, there are quite a number of um, questions in the Q&A box. Uh, Brett and I have uh, dropped down some of the questions and tried to uh, categorize them and ask uh, some of the panels, right? Um, so firstly, I think uh, there's a question specifically to Dr. Chala, right? It's about um, your CO2 inflated arthroscope, right? They want to know if you need any special instrument and so on, right? Would you like to address that? Sure, Patrick. I... I pasted the, the link to our article on how to do it. Uh, if you work in a hospital, any you know, general surgeon that do, does laparoscopy uses that type of machine. We usually, usually use it with 15 millimeters of mercury and you just need an anti-fog solution that you put in the front of your camera. It's actually pretty easy to do. It's, uh, if you've done arthroscopy in the past, it's basically the same. You just put it through a separate portal. It's a very, very thin cannula that you put in, 15 millimeters of mercury, and it gets distended pretty nicely. So I would encourage everybody to try it because it's easy and it's uh, reliable and, and you can treat any cartilage defect using that technology without the need to having to dry the, the defect. So that, that makes it nicer. Good, thanks George, right? Now there are some other questions being asked, uh, even though I understand that some of the panelists have already answered that uh, personally in the Q&A box, but I think I can bring out so that all the other attendees may like to know about the answer, right? Uh, the first question is about for young patients with asymptomatic or very uh, uh, minimal symptoms, uh, large lesions, right? Do you see any role of preventive surgery? So it's an open question for all the panelists, right? Asymptomatic or very minimal symptom, but large lesions, right? 
contraindications, right? So we would do any preventive surgery like microfracture or whatever. James? <laughs> it's Hi. a difficult question, you know, the gold, the gold rule of our work is you can't make asymptomatic patient better. So this is always a, a big problem when the patient is asymptomatic. I think the most important thing is to understand why this patient is asymptomatic because normally uh, small lesions are asymptomatic, but big lesion, full thickness lesion, most of the time are becoming symptomatic. So the first thing is to understand why these patients have no symptoms. And the second thing is the patient is young. And these are the patients you see really uh, something that, you know, we can change their life, probably you can go for their preventive surgery, but it's really very, very tough question and you have to solve it patient by patient. It's the same, the only preventive surgery I perform is osteotomy. In reality, because what it's not hurts, but you know, it, it changed your life in the future probably. But uh, for, the, for the lesions is really tough question. Thank you, Elisa, right? So any other opinions? Yeah, Patrick? Yeah. I think as a general rule, we don't operate on people who don't have symptoms. Um, so that's, a, I think, an important message. But it doesn't mean we can't talk to people about their condition, help them understand why they have it, help them understand the natural history and uh, help them understand what their options are. So if it's someone, I mean, they must have come to us for a reason. So they must have some reason other than symptoms. And for example, if they have early arthritis in their medial compartment, we can maybe give them some advice about their activities, their lifestyle, losing weight, and we can follow them and give them an idea as to when they may need surgery and what to look out for. But I don't think we should be operating on people who aren't symptomatic. And these, none of these things are urgent. People can be, uh, have it explained to them and then think about it over the longer term. Okay, good. So uh, if no further opinion, so let's move on uh, to next questions, right? One question is about the comparison of nano fractures versus the micro fracture. I think David, you did answer online, right? So anyone want to elaborate more? Nano fractures versus the micro fracture. No? So, so I think I can add to it that uh, it, it's the size of the all that uh, sometimes can affect the subchondral ossification. If you have a much thicker owl, there are more chances that there will be more subchondral bone reaction and gradually leading to more ossification. And that ossification, when that grows gradually towards the cartilage surface, it can damage the already grown cartilage. So there is one paper by, I think, P. Orth in 2013, we demonstrated that, but uh, we need to have more human studies on that because it's just a laboratory study. Otherwise, uh, I don't think that there should be any major difference. Okay, cool. So we, we are about to publish this in arthroscopy, Patrick, and we looked at our outcomes comparing just a, a, a single microfracture, all type of microfracture versus microdrilling. And what we found was that the microdrilling had a better success rate at getting minimal clinical uh, differences. So I think there, there, there is a difference in regards to how you prepare the lesion, as I showed in that histological analysis, when you do a, a normal microfracture with an awl, you can actually create that subchondral reaction that doesn't allow bone, bone marrow channels to be open to that site. So that might be something that we should consider down the line. And I think we still need more data and other groups to look at this, to be able to say this for sure, but that's, that's a start. And that might you know, look and open some other eyes to look at this and, and get us some more answers. 
uh, another question is about um, several questions asked about the lesions on the tibial plateau on the tibial side, right? So, guys, um, what's your opinion, right? These are very difficult to treat, yeah. um, Patrick, because they're in a, in a difficult location, and um, it, it's it's always a more difficult lesion to treat than if it's in the femoral side. So what I do, I, I've started doing this autologous uh, type of solution where I harvest <coughs> some of the of the trochlear cartilage that it's basically in the non-weight bearing zone and mix it with BMAC and then deliver it to the site of the lesion. Using CO2 makes it easier to do that because when you use water to distend the joint, it's actually very difficult to dry it after the procedure. So I found that to be a, a good solution. But again, as David was saying, the potentially the most important thing is to know that the alignment is the, the correct alignment because that's going to be our major game changer for those patients. Matt, can I segue into um, asking David about alignment or George, if you want to talk about it as well, how much malalignment warrants an osteotomy? Um, we all know that if it's malaligned, we should unload it. Uh, David, I think gave great guidelines to how much to, to, uh, to aim for, but how much is malalignment that requires an osteotomy? Uh, well, I'll, I'll go first. I, mean, I gave the guidelines there because I think that's trying to look at it very mechanically and look at what the loads are. I think um, there's a lot of things that need to go into the question, but certainly if you think the alignment is going to abnormally load the area. So if, but if someone, let's say, for example, you have a 16 year old kid who's in you know, a degree or two of physiological valgus and they have an acute injury and they take something off their lateral femoral condyle. I don't think they need an osteotomy because they've got a healthy knee. They hope they've got a normal meniscus. But if it's somebody has OCD, that's more of a chronic pathology, they're in valgus like the one I showed, that needs to be corrected. And I think if there's any ever any doubt, yeah, you're always going to increase your chance of success, particularly in a more chronic situation by getting the alignment correct. And in many cases, it's the only thing that you know is going to have a definite effect. Laurie, so we you want to follow yeah. on the tibial plateau uh, lesions, right? Oh, tibial side. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, by arthroscopic uh, treatment, the angle of the you know probe uh, is a very you know shallow, and it is difficult to you know get to the lesion perpendicularly. So I would prefer the retrograde you know treatment. And either uh, OCT or uh, just uh, bone grafting. And uh, if needed uh, from the joint side, we would add some cerebrate therapy. And uh, CO2 gas, uh, arthro dry arthroscopy is a key. Okay, cool. Thanks, Ray. Um, there is um, some questions regarding cartilage lesions over the patella side, right? Okay. So James, you did a lot of uh, MPFL, right? Or uh, patella instability, right? So there must be some patella lesions, right? That you encounter. How do you deal with that, right? I think um, the most of the those MPFL patients rarely has actually uh, cartilage lesions. When you talk about the one that I had, uh, actually sadly a lot in the patient in the 40s and they do have, you know, when uh, typically I would do a CT patella tracking, I look at how badly aligned they are. I also look at TTTG distance. And actually I did a fair bit of AMZ as part of the 
adjuvant procedure. And I actually agree with George, I gradually uh, get my angle. Last time like 20, later become 30, now it's like 45, you know, you're getting more and more uh, uh, medialized and also anterior in that uh, aspect. So I did a lot of adjuvant uh, therapy together with it. So people may wonder, is it your cell actually make the difference or actually your adjuvant osteotomy that uh, plays even a bigger part? Yeah. So I, I feel that any patella lesion in my mind, all your underlying malalignment must be addressed first and foremost. There's been so several questions pop up there about rehabilitation. Maybe, Eliza, would you like to give us a quick, it's a very broad topic of its own, how do we rehab the patients in regards to weight bearing and range of motion that you're doing a chondral procedure on? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Rehabilitation is one of the key points in, 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 in cartilage surgery. So till now, we still completely agree that there was possibilities, you know, a lot of studies, uh, to anticipate weight bearing. But till now, the general consensus that you still need to keep these patients one month without weight bearing. It depends obviously with how big is the defect, how stable your, your graft is, because it's, it's also strongly affected. Because if you have done mosaic plasty, you can almost start weight bearing after a couple of weeks. And if you have done uh, scaffolds and depends of what type of scaffold. So chondrocytes for sure needs more time than the others. So for weight bearing is really related to the defect and related to the technique. And another thing which is uh, very important for my opinion, which is the key, when you're dealing especially with sport active patients, where the patient have to be followed up to the field because the patient with a cartilage reconstruction probably will experiment more difficult respect to the patient just with anterior cruciate ligament. And not always they have an understanding about it. And a lot of the times they, they want to start playing like after six months and they can't after cartilage procedures. So you have to stop them. So these patients are really very important that they have on-field part of rehabilitation. I'm a big fan of on-field rehabilitation. And uh, to, the, to recuperate their sport specific activity after cartilage surgery, but it's completely- When do you possible. let them play sport, Eliza? So four hmm? weeks, non-weight bearing or touch weight bearing, unrestricted range of motion, I would assume to stimulate- All this unrestricted growth. range of motion. It's range of motion but is very when important. Sorry? When do you let the athlete go back to their sport? When can they run? When can they jump? When can they play? Uh, okay, so most of the time, uh, as we always talk with uh, Stefano de la Villa is our guru of rehabilitation. So he always shows this, uh, these green lights and red lights that says it's not time based, is the achievement based. So the patient, you can leave the patient to go on field once the patient have recuperated all the muscle strength. And uh, in, during the cartilage, so you can't leave the patients if you'd have not his genetic taste is not okay. And all the strength is, of the muscles is not, uh, it's not compensated flexors and extensors and so on. So have to pass through all this test before coming to, to, to sports. But normally, generally talking, I leave my patients uh, with cartilage reconstructions. We are talking about scaffolds and chondrocytes. So more delicate, not just mosaic plasty. Mosaic plasty is quicker. But I keep them without any type of activity, at least for uh, six, seven months. Then after six months, no water activities much before, they can go in the water almost immediately. 
and then they can't start can start cycling at four months, not uphill, but just cycling on the normal, on 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 the plane level. And then I leave them to go to to back to sports after eight, nine, ten months, depending on the type of the technique, the lesion, and so on. So sometimes osteochondritis desiccans, which are biggest lesions and biggest reconstructions, I keep them at least one year. The osteochondritis desiccans, I, I save them from the beginning. You will not come back to sports before one year. For the other lesions, you can be more, more permissive. But I also think that it depends on where they are. If they, it's a patellofemoral injury, you can let them weigh bear right away in full extension. So um, yeah, I think that-, that yes. Yes. So the, the weight bearing depends upon the side of the lesion. You can tailor the range and the position of weight bearing. I use a T-ROM brace or a lock brace to control that. So you want to leave that specific region unloaded, correct? Yeah. Correct. But in general, also... you have to take care about the stairs more than more than more than weight bearing, and also they becoming rigid patellofemoral ones. This is another problem with the rehabilitation in, in, in their case. As Elisabetta was saying, I think, you know, motion is lotion for this patient. So I put them on a CPM machine for the first two weeks, make sure that they move early on because these patients tend to get stiff and that's, that's a big, big problem. So you need to make sure that they will be moving. Additionally, we know from, from lab studies that if you don't move the cartilage and you don't load it, they will create more hypertrophic cartilage. So you need that certain loading to create more hyaline cartilage if you do any restoration procedures. So completely agree with Elisabetta there. So those very elite athletes you look after, George, the same time frame for them to go back to sport? Yeah, so it, it depends on what you do. If you do a, a Macy type of procedures, those patients need a little bit longer type of time. When you do an osteoconolatograph, that would probably tell them six months to set up expectations. You know, elite athletes think in a different way. So you say six months, they say, I'm, I'm better. I'm going to go back at 4.5 months. So... <laughs> You also, you always want to set up expectations longer so that they, they know they can't go back before that. And then if you feel as, you know, I, I fully agree with, with Elisabetta and Stefano and, 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 and everybody that thinks that milestone-based approaches to returns to sports should be the gold standard and not just time. But there is also a biological issue that we need to take into consideration, right? Like if you do an osteoconal allograft, then you need to make sure that that bone is incorporated to the host before you let them go back, even though they might have, you know, phenomenal VMOs and, and they might be completely recovered from a muscular standpoint. We need to make sure that everything is in place before we let them go back because the salvages procedure, for example, for an OCA is not an easy thing to do if, you, if you've done everything right. So you want to make sure that you get it right the first time. Does anybody use, Giorgio or Elizabeth, do you use Imaging to guide return to play. You're looking for cartilage health, bone edema on the scan. I usually don't. I usually don't. I just, um, you know, talk to the physical therapist, make sure that they have reached all their milestones, make sure that the patient is uh, safe from a mental standpoint too. Some people are more apprehensive to go back. And, and those people, I tend to leave them off for a little bit longer because I want to make sure that they are ready not only from a, from a physical standpoint, but also from a mental standpoint. And once they're ready, I, I don't need any MRI or CT scan to let me know that if the joint is not swollen and if they are pain-free, that they can go back safely. I agree I with Chahala. We... before one year, sorry, Deepak. Yeah, yeah. Because before it's scaring picture most of the time, especially when you're using biologic 
things like scaffolds or chondrocytes. And the people get scared. They get, after six months, the, the, the radiologist report and radiologists say it's a big lesion on your condyle and, and the people you know, get demotivated and scared. So I never make them go do MRI before one year from the cartilage surgery. I, I, I agree, we did that analysis in our clinic and we found out that uh, for uh, mosaic or OATS patient, if you do MRI before one year, it shows lots of bone marrow edema and radiologists report it as a bad or a failure. And for ACI patient, we saw that bone marrow edema persists for two years. So for two years, uh, it's like I'm always scared to see MRI because I know that that is not going to show me any rosy picture uh, on the film. So I don't think MRI has a role. The clinical assessment is the most important thing. Might help slow them down a little bit when you don't want them going back at six months. <laughs> We might can, I, come. can I suggest one point uh, using MRI? Uh, of course, bone marrow condition is important, but uh, I always check the integration and the percent feeling of the defect uh, at a certain point. And uh, unless uh, integration attained, uh, I would still uh, keep the patient uh, from, back, from back to the strenuous activity. So uh, rather conservative, but uh, I've always checked the uh, control condition. I would agree too. I think, I think the MRI gives us information. It's how we use it that's important. And I think, you know, we always talk about the importance of bone edema before the surgery. So it probably has some importance after the surgery as to how we restore the osteochondral unit. So I think, yeah, we can do MRIs at whatever interval you want. And if you have the knowledge of what should be happening, then you can interpret them appropriately. Okay, well, thank you for a great discussion. We've used our 90 minutes uh, very well, I think. Uh, thanks. A lot of people to thank, predominantly the, the panelists, Patrick, uh, for putting this together with me and, and, uh, and the panelists for your outstanding experience and explanation of that experience. It's a difficult topic. It's a difficult thing to treat well, and uh, I'm sure the audience has appreciated the expertise. So thank you all very much, and thanks for all the attendees for joining. Uh, and please, uh, and to Isakos and APCAS for, for hosting this event. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Good night.